0: Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Fussman. Sometimes I meet people whose voice needs to be heard. Reagan Anderson is one of them. Reagan is a listener to Big Questions. He's also a doctor. And if you've listened to Big Questions before, you know that I feel deeply about taking care of the people who are taking care of the rest of us. There's a high rate of physician burnout and physician suicide in America and it will be tragic if we overlook or dismiss this. Now, talking with a dermatologist may seem like an odd place to start to begin looking into healthcare. Come on, a pimple popper? Well, Reagan's is much larger than stereotype. He's an osteopathic doctor who does a couple of dozen skin cancer surgeries a day. He also served in the military as a surgeon in Iraq, in Fallujah, when it was an intense war zone, and operated on people who were machine gunned in half. He'll tell you straight away that he has post-traumatic stress disorder and explain how he works through it every day. What he's accomplished is formidable. He's now got a clinic in Colorado Springs, channel on the internet for patients called Your Health University, and he's starting a course called The Business of Medicine for Physicians. When he told me he felt an uncomfortable overlap of his experiences in Iraq and what he faces working in America every day, I became curious. Well, his description builds and then comes together at the end of our conversation And what may seem an outrageous connection becomes completely understandable. Reagan's got a book coming out soon that gets at his experiences in Iraq. It's called Universal Death Care in the Age of Entitlement. Title tells you he's not here to sugarcoat. His experiences in this conversation made me see healthcare in a clear and fresh way. He's a courageous man, and my sense is that over time, he's going to have an impact and make some big changes. Now, if this subject makes anyone uncomfortable, let me remind you of an episode I did with the guy running the New Orleans Pelicans, David Griffin. David has twice been treated for testicular cancer, and he described on this podcast coming through the discomfort of chemo in the most comfortable way wearing his Sportiques. Because you are never going to be more comfortable in clothing than when you're in a soft Sportique hoodie, comfy tee, or sweatpants. And if you like Chino's, check him out on Sportique.com. Use the alpha code Cal and get a 20% discount on the chinos or anything else on the website. Now, last week, I moderated a conversation on stage with Marie Kondo, the queen of tidying up and the ambassador of joy. And I learned many things. Among them, never, ever ball up your socks. Another to let go of the things that you're not using and that don't spark joy. Well, let me tell you something. Every time I reach for a Sportique hoodie or comfy tee, joy is sparked. So spark some yourself at sportique.com. That should make you very comfortable. And now that you're comfortable, let's get straight to Reagan Anderson. This is going to be an amazing hour uh, because I'm so glad that you reached out because I have this question. Who's gonna care for the people who are caring for others when the people who are caring for others are not having an easy time of it. And we now know that physician burnout is a big issue in our time, physician suicide. And I feel like you know why. And so we're gonna get into this. Now, the crazy thing about this to me is that I am sitting with a dermatologist. (laughs) So you would think that of any doctor, a dermatologist would have the least amount of pressure. Teenagers come in, you pop a few pimples and call it a day. Go home, have a good night. Nobody bothers the dermatologist at two in the morning, do they? Very infrequently. Yes. Okay, so as a dermatologist, you should be shielded from most of the difficulties that physicians are going through. But- it doesn't sound like you are. So what is the difficulty that physicians are going through
1: in our day and age? It's a great question. And you are very correct that dermatologists have some of the lowest rates of burnout, somewhere around 38%. The rest of the medical field, though, is experiencing burnout. And I don't think it's a single issue that's happening. I think it's more of a systemic Everything, every part of the system, from the patient to the insurance carrier, is asking the physician, asking the nurse practitioner and the everybody that is involved in medical care, they're asking them to do things that are going against the grain of who we are. And they call it moral injury. And every profession has moral injury. And moral injury is defined as forcing you to do something that are against your moral values. And physicians, healthcare providers in this country are being forced to do everything that they said they would never do prior to going into medical school. And it is starting to wear on us. Like, can you give an example? Sure. So we have businesses. We have to pay salaries. We didn't get into medicine to be bill collectors. And yet medical... Causes of bankruptcy are the number one cause of bankruptcy in America, and it's been that way for decades. We aren't allowed to write the medications that we need to write oftentimes because it costs too much for the insurance company, or they didn't get a good price break this month. We don't know what a patient is going to do when they go home. So are they going to take care of themselves? Are they going to follow advice, or are they just going to come back and want something else different done for them? Just every part of the system, Cal, on average, physicians get reimbursed about 60% of what they charge. And patients have no idea what they're going to be charged when they go home. And so we're asked to be bookkeepers. We're asked to be accountants. We're asked to be public health experts and to ration the care that we give our patients. We're supposed to be the brokers between the patient and their insurance contract. Because the only person that a patient can yell at when something goes wrong with their insurance contract is the doctor. And so we have to be the broker between a contract that we aren't even part of.
0: And you didn't go into medical school with any idea this was gonna happen to you. So let's go back to the beginning because you also have an amazing story that you're gonna tell in your book, which you call universal death care in the age of entitlement. We had a wonderful dinner last night And in that dinner, we learned about your time serving in the Navy in Iraq Mm -hmm. and the tension and stress that that brought. And what startled me was to find out that you are equating the tensions that you felt there with tensions
1: that physicians are now going through here. Absolutely correct. In in Iraq, there were bullets flying and mortars dropping. I was the 1st Reconnaissance Battalion surgeon. And for people who aren't aware of what 1st Recon is, it's when I was serving with them, they were very roughly the Navy SEAL equivalent in the Marine Corps. And so we had all the worst assignments. We went to all the horrible places. Um, You were in Fallujah, which everybody knows
0: was basically... The, the hot spot yeah. of the
1: country, that was where the trouble was. It was where the trouble was over and over again. It, it, it was the hot spot. And, and the horrendous things that happened in Flugia, the horrendous things that happen in war, you know, the, the needless deaths, the tragedies that you can't uh, control, the collateral damage, all of those things are the exact same things that are happening in America with the quote-unquote health care that we have here. There's needless deaths because there's rationing of care. People think that we don't ration care in America, but 100%, it is the worst rationing of care of any developed nation on the planet. And we have the worst health statistics on almost every measurable outcome that you can possibly measure compared to all the other developed nations. The worst, And yet as Americans, we think we're the best at everything.
0: Well, you know what? I've, I just gave a, a talk at a major facility. Uh, and I was actually allowed in to talk to people who work there. And I heard stories that were miraculous. Mm. So we are doing the miraculous every day.
1: Absolutely. I mean, our healthcare workers are putting their heart and soul On the line every day to save people wherever they can be saved and I think we deliver some of the best medicine on the planet and I think that's evidenced by people come to America to be trained people with money from other countries when everything else has failed in their country they'll come to America and pay cash but that is rationing of care and the same rationing of care that happens for if you're very rich in Saudi Arabia and you want to go to the Mayo Clinic it's the same rationing of care that happens in America, that if you have money and you have privilege, you can see a doctor. And if you don't, you don't get treated at all. And so I think the health care workers in this country are the only thing that is making the healthcare care system work as well as it is. And I don't think it's working very well, but we're only one very small part of the problem. Okay, so let's take this
0: back to the start. Why did you want to become... A doctor or a dermatologist? I mean, did you know that you wanted to be a doctor first or a dermatologist first?
1: It was, it was doctor first. So I went to medical school after seminary, and then I went into the Navy because, I frankly, I couldn't afford medical school. And medical school is enormously expensive. Uh, right now, I think it's about 200000 $220,000 is the average debt that someone has when they leave medical school in America. So I had the military pay for my medical school, and then I owed them time as a physician. And that time I spent, I volunteered to be the 1st Reconnaissance Battalion Surgeon, and that's how I spent the majority of my commitment, paying back the debt that I owed for them paying for medical school.
0: So when you went to Iraq, did you know that you're going to be a dermatologist? No. No, You had no idea. I made
1: fun of them. You made fun of dermatologists? Absolutely. Everybody knows that dermatologists aren't real doctors. (laughs) I mean, come on. We can pop a pimple with the best of them, but it's ridiculous. And um, so what happened was I was in a mission in Fallujah, and I, I couldn't tell you how many days in a row I hadn't showered and were eating with these MREs and hadn't You know, just stressed to the max. And I was waiting for casualties to come in, and we were taking incoming fire. And I was sitting on a laptop waiting for casualties to come in, and this makeshift. Basically, we went into people's houses, and we said, look, we're kicking you out. We're going to pay you like a year's salary if we can use your house for one to two weeks. And then we cleaned the house for them, and we left. But there were dirt floors, stuff coming off the walls, rat infested, bug infested. And that's where I set up. My makeshift clinic to take care of casualties when they came in. And the Iraqis loved it because they basically left their house for a week, got a, a year's worth of salary, and we cleaned it spick and span at least as much as you can clean a, a dirt floor house. And so i'm I'm sitting there in this place and looking at the paint coming off the ceiling and the walls, and I have a cot ready to take care of the traumas that are that are about to come in. And I'm on the laptop typing a paper to publish. And I just think, man, Cal, I can't do this anymore. I just I've given everything I had to the military. Um, I had PTSD at that point, and I just I wanted to get out of medicine. So what I was going to do, my plan was to finish the tour in Iraq, finish my military obligation, which was about another year and a half at that point, and then become a chef. But then I thought, you know, I did all this time going to medical school. What if I just tried dermatology because there wasn't a lot of death and dying in dermatology? And I had dated a girl who was a dermatologist, and she loved her life. But it's the most competitive specialty out there. So I thought, there's no way. Dermatology is the most competitive Absolutely. specialty? I mean, we kind of flip-flop between plastics, dermatology, and ophthalmology. But one of those three is always the most competitive specialty out there. So I thought, I'd give it a shot. But I it was kind so of- So you're
0: what, completely burned out
1: from the war. Completely. I hadn't slept in a year and a half at that point, more than an hour or two. I hadn't- I was on, at that point, it was what either, did it Describe
0: your life during that period.
1: It was hypervigilant. I didn't sleep. I mean, I was lucky if I got one to two hours of sleep a night. I'd wake up with my fist clenched or with my weapon in my hand, drenched sweat, just like night sweats drenched. I was quiet. I was secluded. And I took care of my men. The only thing I, I lived for was to take care of the men and bring them back to their- to their families. And at Recon Battalion, it is a male-only battalion because of the physical demands that were placed on us. So it was just a battalion of men. And before I, I went for the second tour in Iraq, I remember there was a picnic for the battalion. And I had all these wives and children come up to me and say, Bring my daddy home. And even though there was nothing left, really nothing. I was triple or quadruple the maximum dose of antidepressants when I was over there. And because they said it would help, well, I don't care how many pills you take, Cal, you're not gonna be able to get over being shot at and treating kids who are ripped in half from machine gun fire and all the horrible atrocities that happen in war, no pill's gonna help that. And so my state of mind was, how did I live? I, I didn't live. I, I moved through the motions and by the grace of God, Every single person who came to me alive, I was able to keep them alive and get them to a higher echelon of care. Every single person, two combat tours in Iraq. You know, war is, is glamorous, right? At least Hollywood thinks it is. And, and it's, it's stark contrasts. But the very same thing is happening in America. So I just well, read that, a study See, this, this is where, okay, yeah. you
0: just described to me these horrific scenarios, like kids basically cut in half by machine gun fire and put in front of you, and you have to save them. And now you're equating it to what's going on here. So obviously there's problems, but can they be that large?
1: Well, you have a car accident. You have a stroke victim. You have a heart attack victim. You have somebody dying of fill-in-the-blank. And even though the conditions are way better here and you're not getting shot at and there's not you're not on a dirt floor treating somebody, it's still the, the same moral injury of how do I take care of this person? And what happens to them if I keep them alive in a system? Are they gonna be bankrupt? Am I gonna be able to get the care that I need? Because some bureaucrat at some insurance company is going to allow physical therapy, or they're gonna allow the medication the person needs, or they're gonna allow, I mean, our hands are tied in war, yeah, there's a lot of unforeseen circumstances that happen, traumas that are coming in. You hit a school instead of hitting the insurgent household. Um, you, know, you name the tragedy that happens over there. It's no different than the tragedies that happen in America except for it's in a more controlled environment.
0: All right. So a lot of this seems to me that you are like looking ahead for the patient like after you treat them, what's gonna to happen to them? How will all this unfold? Is this something that a lot of physicians go through that they don't want it to be, all right? You just come in the office, because that's kind of the joke, isn't it? Come in there take two aspirin and you'll be fine. Call me in the morning. Yeah, yeah call yeah. me in the morning. Oh, yeah. But it's what you're describing is something that is on the other
1: end of the spectrum. It is because we are the only advocates for patients anymore. We're the only ones who have a voice. You know, you call your insurance company and ask for help. Hey, I really need this prior authorization done. Their job is to make money for the shareholders. Their job is not to heal people. You know, under Obamacare, a certain amount of money has to now be spent on direct patient care. But beyond that, not one penny more is what the shareholders want.
0: Okay, so now you, as a doctor, are placed in a position where you're part accountant, part bill collector, part negotiator, right. which when you went into medical school, no. never never, thought. And
1: if you had known it was like that, what would you have done? Run for the hills. Run for the hills. We aren't taught any of that. And that's what we have to and, I'm, I'm starting a course called the business of medicine where I'm going to be teaching physicians everything that they know, need to know to run a business as one attempt to try to help with this burnout. But Cal, the only part of the system that's working is the part of the system that has to do with the healthcare providers themselves who are still sacrificing. And it's not just the doctor. It's also the medical assistant. It's the janitors. It's this whole group of people that gather together to take care of the patient. You know, it's such, it is the biggest business in America at basically 19% of our gross domestic product. Think about that 19%. And the estimates are sometime in the next five to 10 years, it's going to be 25% of gross domestic product. It is big business, Cal. Obama, I have a lot of respect for what he tried to do, but Obama tried to get a good healthcare system in place. The insurance companies, the pharmaceutical companies, they wouldn't allow him to do it. Now, he had control of the House. He had control of the Senate and the presidency. And he still couldn't get the bill passed that he knew he needed to. So he made compromises. And I I do not hold it against him. He did the best he could. But he knew that he only got us to about the 25-yard line. So there's 75
0: yards to go, in your mind, to get us to a place where
1: not only you'll be happy, but everybody will be happy? Well, I don't know if you can ever make everybody happy. But yeah, we've got a long way to go. You have to go and be able to go into your doctor. And you have to know before you go in what it's going to cost you. You Which we we don't know that. You have zero idea. I can't even tell a patient what it's going to cost because I don't know what games the insurance company is going to play. So you have to know what it's going to cost you. You have to know before that what you should have done to keep yourself healthy. Doctors in America, we got in to help people. We are now purveyors of death and disease. Cal, I went to an osteopathic medical school. In fact, the founding school of osteopathic medicine. And I think by and large, they gave me a very good education. But I had hardly any time for diet and nutrition and spiritual growth and development. Now that has to be the foundation of any quote unquote healthcare policy is know how to eat, know how to exercise, and know how to take care of your spirit, your soul, your mind, your brain, whatever you wanna call it. We're taught none of that. And yet, we're taught at least a year, at least a year, if not two years, all about the drugs that we can prescribe. Why? Because the pharmaceutical companies, well, they give a lot of money to medical schools. And over the years, over the decades, they've pushed it so that we learn So much about the drugs that mask the symptoms, very rarely do they actually treat the underlying disorder. And we learn hardly anything about how to keep people healthy, how to keep people to live a good life that they want to live. And it's not just all on the insurance or all on pharmaceutical. It's on the patients as well. I mean, the obesity that we have in this country, it will bankrupt us. It is projected that by 2050, one third of this country will be diabetic one third. One out of every three kids in sixth grade will be
0: diabetic. Well,
1: not kids. I'm talking about I, the adult, adult onset okay. diabetes, the diabetes that is caused by being obese. Now, if you were to, here's an interesting thing. People always say, oh, Reagan, you don't have, there's not enough money for universal health care, And they're absolutely correct. Currently, as things are In the age of entitlement that we live in in America right now, where we think we can eat and consume and do anything we want to our bodies, and we're entitled to good health, you're right. Under that system, there is no money to be had. There's not even money to sustain us right now. And Medicare is going to run out of money by 2030 at this pace. The only way that there's going to be enough money is if people start learning and doing the things that are necessary to stay healthful. So, over 50% of every healthcare dollar that is spent right now in this country is spent on very preventable diseases. All of them basically stemming from our diet, from obesity, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, those sorts of things. What, like, what are those diseases? Well, it's obesity. Right. It's high blood pressure. Okay. From obesity All and right. diet. It's high cholesterol from obesity and diet and lack of exercise, and it's diabetes. Those four diseases, and I'm not talking about the diabetes that you get when you're a kid and you're skinny, you know, the type one. I'm talking about the diabetes that you get because you're not taking care of yourself. Those consume over 50% of all healthcare dollars. Some estimates are up to 85% of all healthcare dollars on those four diseases. So the healthiest 50% of Americans only consume 3% of healthcare dollars.
0: Oh, man. So really, it's a matter of just getting everybody healthy from the start to reboot
1: the system. Yeah, you can't have a get-rich-quick scheme for medicine where you can be 400 pounds and smoke and chew tobacco and drink yourself into the grave and then expect, voila, you walk into your doctor's office and they'll hand you a pill and poof, everything's okay. And, And that's another part that our is driving physicians crazy, is that people expect that they can spend 99.9% of their lives destroying their body and 0.1% going to the doctor and we're just gonna wave (laughs) the magic wand, Cal, and you're gonna be healthful again. And then they're gonna get mad at you because they have a $5,000 deductible and they're paying two or $3,000 a month for that ridiculous, horrible health insurance. And everything comes out of their pocket unless they have some catastrophic event. Who are they mad at? They're mad at the doctor. So I read just this last week that in one medical school in America, they did a study on how many of their medical students were on antidepressants or on stimulants to learn all the information they needed to learn. And this one medical school, it was 75%. So 75% of the people who are being brought up for the next generation to be our healers, they're at the end of their rope on antidepressants and all sorts of Ritalin and stimulants so they can learn all the information they need. And then they go through residency training, which makes you know, medical school seem like a walk in the park. And then after seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years of this, the humans that are left behind, the humans that are available to treat society are already broken, poor, burnt out, depressed.
0: You know, it, there's so many physicians that I've met that, on the surface, you you don't see that. Are they camouflaging
1: it? 100%. We're control freaks, Cal. We're all type A control freaks. And we know if the medical board gets wind of any sort of mental illness. In the state of Alaska, as of two years ago, I think they still do, they actually ask questions of doctors about their mental health. Have you ever had, do you currently have any? And they list all these mental health disorders that's called illegal in any other industry (laughs) illegal (laughs) and the medical boards um the punitive nature of a physician admitting a mental disease i have ptsd i'm fine with it i did two tours in iraq if i didn't have ptsd i'd be a monster medical board do what you want to me but i don't mind and i'm very honest with my patients every single morning i get up i do my exercises I eat well. I do, if you want to call it meditation or prayer or whatever you want to call it, I do all of that. I frame my day so that the experiences that happen in Iraq will not affect me. And I can use those as strengths instead of weaknesses to take care and help my patients as I'm cutting cancers off their face all day long. I have found a way to make it into a strength. But physicians kill themselves more than any other profession out there. Our suicide rates are worse than any other profession, Cal. And it's a bunch of people suffering in silence because if they step forward, if they get the help they need, the medical board might take away their license. So
0: just at the outset, being vulnerable and admitting that you did something wrong is going to make patients think, I don't want to go to that doctor because everybody else can screw up. You know, if you're a football coach, you can make the wrong call. Everybody in the stadium screams and you get to play next week. But if people know that a doctor has messed up, sure,
1: they aren't going to buy a ticket. So let me ask you this, Cal. Would you, let me read some statistics here for you. So on average, 44% of physicians are burnt out. Some professions as high as almost 70%. Would you hire a football coach who was burnt out? Yeah, absolutely not. Why not? Well, you wouldn't get the best
0: performance. I mean, you know what? I've never mentioned this before, but uh, my mom had um, breast cancer Mm. uh, and she was actually very wily uh, about it and she survived 20 years. Wow. Uh, But toward the end, she got, a doctor who basically stopped seeing her. She would send somebody else who was qualified to look and write up the notes and get it back to her. But she wouldn't see my mom. And we, we didn't know why. And only later did I find out that she was burned out. Yeah. And I guess she'd been looking straight into the eyes of death for a long time and just couldn't do it. And in fact, somebody that I ran into who knew of this person said that when that doctor
1: started, she was a great doctor. Yeah. You can only take so much, Cal. Just like me in flusia waiting for casualties to come in that building and thinking, "I'm going to become a chef so I can see people enjoying themselves and eating some healthful, delicious food." You look at the doctors in America, and I don't know what the exact statistics are, but it's staggering how many side businesses doctors are getting into, trying desperately to get out of their chosen profession.
0: Like what would they be doing?
1: There's forums all over the place about teaching doctors how to get residual income so that they can get out of medicine sooner. There's magazine articles about residual income and about having side businesses. There are so many different people teaching doctors how to get out of medicine because we don't wanna be in medicine anymore. We love taking care of patients when it doesn't cause a catastrophe in some other part of their life. Love it, that's what we got into medicine for, is to help people. But we're not even taught how to prevent diseases, Cal. We, it's gotten so bad that we get paid more as physicians if we write a prescription than if we teach somebody how to eat well. If we even know how to eat well, because we weren't taught in medical school how to eat well. So even if we did know how to teach somebody about what you put into your body will have profound effects on every part of your body, even if we knew how to go through that.
0: So there's a, a, like a certain code that you have to submit in order to get payment. Sure. That says, okay, I'm prescribing this drug and that code is going to get a certain amount of money. Yep. Whereas if you say,
1: eat peas and carrots. Right.
0: Nah, <laughs> you're not gonna get paid that much for that right. or if at all.
1: Right, because it's called medical decision-making. And what your physician bills is following national law, Medicare rates, and all of that sort of thing. And there are more risks with prescribing medications. It's just inherent. They have side effects. We know all the problems with medications. And there aren't that many risks of peas and carrots. So you get paid for the more risk... And so physicians are, not only are we taught from day one in medical school to prescribe, 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 we are not taught how to keep healthy. And then when we're out in practice, we're incentivized to write prescriptions because we get paid more if we write prescriptions. Wow. Is it
0: still a case where, you know, once you're a doctor, you're financially going to be okay? Or is it not the case anymore?
1: It's not the case anymore. I mean, the cost of medical school and then all of that money just collects interest while you're in residency because you're basically working for minimum wage when you're in residency and then you get out of residency and now that 200000 is, I don't know, 300000 and you're in your mid-30s or early 30s and you don't have a house and you don't have a car and all of your friends have been contributing to their 401ks and now you're in a higher tax bracket. Oh, and because you make so much money, you can't deduct any of the costs of schooling, I mean, I know lots of family practitioners who literally struggle month by month just to keep the lights on in their buildings. That's why so many people are going to concierge medicine. So many family practitioners are saying, look, instead of having a panel of 10 to 20,000 people and I take insurance for those people, I'm going to scale it back to 1,000 people and they're going to have to pay me a fee. They're going to have to pay me $1,000 a year or $2,000 a year. And for that fee, I promise that I will be available within 24 hours. They get rid of all their support staff and you know they do four or five hours a week. They still bill insurance, by the way, but it's because it's the Costco method of taking care of people. You charge a fee and then they come to see you. So instead of working 60, 70, 80 hours a week, which by the way is what most physicians work, now they're working 30 hours a week. Instead of wondering how they're going to pay the bills because they're have to have an enormous support staff to get enough patients in to spend five minutes with a patient to get enough of those bills to pay for everything, to pay for the lights. Instead of all that, they only see a couple a day, they spend an hour with them, but it's only the privileged. It is rationing of healthcare. And that's the point I'm trying to get across in this book is that, you know, I am not a Republican, <laughs> despite my name, I am not a Democrat. I'm an American, and George Washington warned us in his farewell address that the more exuberant we are with our political parties, the quicker the demise of our country will be. Rome, too, will fall, and we see it in politics all day long, of people just arguing to defend being a Republican or being a Democrat. It has nothing to do with what's good for America. And so when I am espousing that universal health care is the only way that we can get to some sort of reasonable policy in this country— it's not because I'm a Democrat. It has nothing to do with it. It is the fiscally smart and responsible thing to do. But in order to sustain that, we as a country are going to have to start getting healthful. And you start getting healthful by a carrot and a stick. You know, you don't get universal health care if you are morbidly obese and smoking. Sorry, you don't. Once you start cleaning up your act, and we need to provide every resource possible for people to clean up their act. But once you start cleaning up then you can have healthcare.
0: Wow, but you're rationing it in another way. You're saying, hey, you have a responsibility here. You bet. And if you're not gonna take your responsibility.
1: Yeah, look, think think of the statistics, Cal. The healthiest 50% of Americans consume 3% of all healthcare dollars. So how is it fair to them to pay these enormous rates, deductibles going up all the time, and when they need care, it's all out of pocket. How is it fair to the person who grows up in a lower socioeconomic class, whose family has never had health care? And by the way, I don't consider Medicaid health care, because Medicaid is such a broken system that there are hardly any providers who can take it. I can do an entire surgery for a Medicaid patient. And if I'm lucky, three to six months later, I might get paid $80 for an entire surgery. That doesn't even cover the supplies and my medical staff and my electronic medical record. Oh, man. And so saying that Medicaid is a solution is not a solution. The only reason Medicaid exists is because physicians feel bad for people who need care and are willing to lose money. It makes more sense for me to walk down the street and hand out $20 bills from a business standpoint than it does to see a Medicaid patient. Now, I still see them because my heart breaks for them. But we have rationing of care in this country... So that there's a huge demographic that's undergone generational poverty. They have no health care. They are second-class citizens, and it's atrocious. All I'm asking for people to do, all that this country needs to do so that we can provide health care to everybody, which will make us all healthier, by the way, is to be reasonable, to not suck all the resources out of it. Okay, so that just starts with being very
0: careful about what we're eating. Exercising. What you're saying is so directly in line with Joe DeSena, the founder of Spartan. This this is exactly his life's mission to get people off the couches, get them out on courses, obstacle courses, where even if they're doing a three mile race, it's just moving yourself from point A to point B and you're gonna feel better and he's also very big on plant-based diet sure. he's saying the same thing you're saying how much better did you feel when you
1: did the race and you lost all that oh weight? there's
0: no there's no question about it and and not only that but it, when I'm not preparing for a race for an obstacle race
1: I don't feel as good okay. and I know that so let's 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 rewind to before you started training. All right. Can I ask how, how heavy you were? Sure. Um, I, was, I was definitely uh, more than 180. Okay. And if you were to hear what I just said right. of because of that weight, because of your daily choices, right, you are robbing the ability for every human in this country to abundantly get health care, what would you have said to me?
0: I, I would have been very thoughtful about it because the statistics that you're presenting they grab you by the lapels. Right. It's something that I think sneaks up on us. And when we're working and traveling, it just begins to overwhelm you. You you really have to be vigilant and say, no, I'm eating my vegetables today and eating my fruits today and being very careful about excluding a a lot of the junk. And I hadn't been doing that for a long, long time. And so when you reverse that and start running every day and start exercising every day, you set new patterns in your mind. And That seems to me to be what you're asking, is to set a new pattern in the patient's mind. And you're also seem to be asking to set a new pattern in the way medicine is taught, so that if people do go to the doctor just to get a checkup,
1: they are learning the things that are gonna keep them healthy. Absolutely, and incentivizing them. And if they are healthy, then their healthcare costs less, and if they're not, it costs more. But it's not just the patients, it's not just the individuals listening to the podcast, it's not just medical schools being retrained on what is healthful. It also has to start with our food supply and getting the FDA in line. It has to start with insurance companies. When you say the food supply, what do you mean? Cal, what we are doing to our food is atrocious. From all the stuff with Monsanto that we've all heard about to the people who are on high, Positions within the FDA that allow horrendous practices that, to happen to our food, the pesticides that we allow, how we process the food, the ingredients that are in it, it's, it's poison. You know, you go to some place, and I, I don't want to name a company, but you go to some big chip company that we all love and looks like a triangle. And in those companies, they actually have whole departments of scientists to figure out how to make their ultra processed foods as psychologically and physically addictive as possible. Add the right amount of hydrogenated oil, the right amount of salt, now the right amount of high fructose corn syrup. It is poison, they are being drug dealers, and they have entire departments within all of these huge corporations to figure out not how to make it most healthful, not how to bring the best food to the most number of people while still making a profit, no, no, no. How to make it as absolutely addictive as possible while it destroys everybody. Okay, so
0: where do you insert yourself in the circle? Because if you've got people who are growing up and reaching for that chip mm-hmm. and thinking, "Hey, this is normal, this is fun." Mm. yeah, uh, you can can you and then they're being addicted. Can you then blame them and say, "Go to a higher tax bracket?"
1: You, know, you can't you can't blame them, but it's personal responsibility. And I think the whole system, from what is allowed in our schools to what is taught in our schools, to, you know, milk is, is an absolutely horrible product for us to consume. We've known it for years. And yet, milk, it does a body good. We've all heard it. There has to be truth in advertising. There has to be proper education from, you know, very young to very old. And we have to get our hands on these companies that are saying we are trying to do everything possible for the bottom line while we are poisoning everyone. Is milk poison? I wouldn't go so far as to say milk is poison, but the hormones, the antibiotics, the conditions that the cows are in, all of those things, we are ingesting all of those things. And it is causing major, major health problems.
0: Okay, so another, you know, a big part of this really seems to come to the education.
1: Mm -hmm. Because
0: we, when we're eating things, we don't know what we're really eating. No
1: idea. You have no idea. I mean, the, the, the corn is a great example of all the genetic modification where they actually put the pesticide now into the corn. So the corn is actually genetically modified. Over 90% of the corn in this country is genetically modified so that instead of having to spray a pesticide on the outside, now the corn itself makes the pesticide. You can't just wash it off anymore, Cal. It's in there. Yeah, Yeah. if you like corn. You're eating pesticide. Now, they say that this is enormously safe for us, but it's a toxin. It's an endotoxin from a bacillus bacteria. And they take part of the gene of the uh, genetic code of the bacillus bacteria, and they throw it in the corn so that the Lepidoptera, the caterpillars, and that sort of thing, they die when they take a bite of the corn. They say that we don't process it. But, you know, Roundup kind of said the same thing too. And now glycosates are linked to all sorts of problems. We, we just have no idea what we're doing to our food supply chain. And we have to start getting the FDA in line. You know, as a dermatologist, uh, I just finished writing a- <laughs>
0: As a pimple popper, a pimple let me tell you something. <laughs> popper,
1: yes, let me tell you something. So I, I just got done. Um, Hold it, before you do
0: before, yeah. let's let's get this straight. You may pump pimples, but you're doing like
1: 25 surgeries a day cutting cancer off people. I'm cutting cancer off people all day long. And again, it's because of poor choices of tanning beds and a lifetime of not putting sunscreen on and not being reasonable with the things that people know they should be reasonable with. If you burn more easily, yes, you're gonna get more cancers later on in life, but tanning beds and all that horrible stuff we do to our skin Cal, and then you usually don't get skin cancers when you're young. I mean, some people do, but the So again,
0: you're gonna hit 65, and then whose dollar is it gonna come out?
1: Bada bing, bada boom. It's out of the government's piggy bank.
0: Okay, so getting back to your point, as a dermatologist- Oh,
1: as a dermatologist, you know that the the lotions and potions you put on your skin, they absorb into you. And I just got done co-authoring a chapter in a textbook about medical marijuana, and me and another lady did the section on dermatology. And just as a, a fun fact for How does
0: dermatology and medical marijuana come in- I'm glad you asked. So- well,
1: Where's the overlap here? Well, you see all over the place, CBD products in the drugstore that are mixed into the lotions and potions. Okay, the,
0: when you say CBD products, what, what do you mean? The,
1: the non-psychoactive component of the marijuana plant. Okay. Which has some pretty interesting anti-inflammatory properties. And you go into different health food stores- and you'll see all these lotions and creams and shampoos that are CBD, and they say that they have none of the psychoactive substance, the THC, the stuff that gets you high. I say it right there on the label, no THC. cannibalis, right? Yeah, something crazy like that. Okay. Yeah, I think there's a few missing syllables in that. But yes, okay. um, and so, but when they tested it, when they independently tested this stuff, thirty percent of the products out there that says they have no Mind-altering substances in them have enough to get you stoned by putting it on your skin, and people are putting this stuff all over their babies, all over themselves. Oh because, man! Because there's no regulation. You look at nail polish that people wear, and it has a lot of it has a substance called toluene in it. Well, toluene causes birth defects. It is a carcinogen. This is it a teratogen? It causes birth defects, and our FDA allows tons and tons of chemicals into our cosmetic products that most other developed nations have banned years ago. Why? Because there's a lot of money to be made in cheaper products that will kill you. We have sold our soul in this country to making more money for the corporations. And I get it. Listen, corporations need to make money. I am not anti-capitalist. I am anti-capitalism at the expense of murdering people.
0: All right, well, we live in a world of corporations. We do. And corporations do things to keep the world spinning. Sure. So the, I guess the question ultimately becomes, if we're just re-looking at the whole system, does it start with the patient? Does it start with even before that, where the, the patient has to be educated or the patient has to be told about the carrot? And the,
1: Like, where does this start? I don't know. I'm a, a rip-the-band-aid-off-quickly type guy. Yes,
0: yeah, so it ripped it off, and now I'm yeah. looking at it and so, saying, but, but we Cal- got an infected wound here.
1: Yep, but we also have to look at the corporations and the enormous lobbying and the money that they put in to lobby their position. And the insurance companies are making just money hand over fist. It's charging ridiculous. It's a great strategy by insurance companies. You know, under Obamacare... Um, it's either 80 or 85% depending on if it's a single insurance plan or a group plan that they have to spend on direct patient care. But think about it from a business perspective because you're now merging into CEO land of, of Cal Incorporated, right? So if you charge a whole lot of money for an insurance contract, two, three, four, thousand dollars a month for your family, and then there's a five or ten thousand dollar deductible, which are becoming fairly commonplace now. Cal, if you had all of that, would you say, hey, I'm gonna run to the doctor now and I'm gonna get to my five or ten thousand dollars so I can now use my insurance? Or are you gonna ration your own care and not oh, go into man. the doctor as oh, often? Man. Wow. So this is what happens. So they can only spend 80 or 85% on. Patient care, the rest is profit for them, they can do, right? Admin, whatever, boat trips, yacht trips, whatever. And so they jack up all the rates a lot. It was estimated that last year, insurance companies would have to pay back $800 million to their participants because they made more money than they were allowed under Obamacare.
0: So they have to give that money back to the government or back to the people. The, the people. You
1: who have the contracts. The me. Yeah. The me, the guy who's paying the the premiums. But from a business perspective, Cal, how does that make sense? Because that's a lot of money and stamps and calculating fees and bean counters figuring out who gets what. Unless the insurance rates are jacked up so high that you can't afford to go into a doctor anymore because you're paying so much in premiums and your deductible is so high. So you end up consuming less medicine from the start. Which means the insurance companies eventually pay out less money. Does that follow? Does that make sense? Why wouldn't you charge what you think is about right? Maybe 100 million more among all of them, maybe 50 million more. Why are you going to exorbitantly charge so much more just so you can go through the hassle of giving the money back at the end at next year?
0: I, I never got any money back. Well, checks in the mail, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, man. You know what? Here, here's my question to you, and and this would be interesting. I I would like to have somebody on who works for an insurance company, mm. and and my question is, would they be telling me, Cal, you don't understand, we're under a lot of stress. I can even think of, say, a CEO, who has, and this word fiduciary responsibility, where their job is to make as much money for their shareholders. That's the nature of their job. And it's not the nature to look ahead 10 or 20 years and do what may be best. It's the shareholders are gonna need the best return now. So they're, they're living under that stress. They, they, they may be under the same stress that
1: the physicians you're talking about. I bet they are. I bet they are, Cal. But it's, just, it's symptomatic of an entire industry. 19% of our gross domestic product is hemorrhaging. It has to be fixed in a global scale, not just from the patients, not just from the pharmaceutical companies, not just from insurance, not just from government. The whole thing needs an overhaul. And pharmaceutical companies, as a pimple popper, right? right. We, we write some antibiotics sometimes, doxycycline. We used to be able, 5, 10 years ago, be able to write generic doxycycline for $10, $15 for an entire month's worth. That same script now is a couple hundred, $300, $400 for generic, Cal. It's the same sin that the guy with EpiPen did, where he just kept jacking up the price because what are they going to do, die? And that was the whole point. I'll just keep jacking up the price of EpiPen, of doxycycline, of these antibiotics or that until i make as much profit as i want you know when capitalism
0: now when they do that
1: see here's exactly what i was talking about when something like
0: that happens doesn't that then force the insurance company to respond and
1: oh sure and because now they're pushing the insurance company it's the everybody's pushing
0: everybody here
1: it's the cold war of medicine everybody just keeps arming themselves more and more and more and jacking up the prices more and more and more
0: Well, I'm gonna be interested to, I'd like to talk to somebody in in insurance. I'd like to talk to somebody in in pharma and understand.
1: Oh, and they're gonna say it's research and development. And there are some, you know, we we produce a lot of great medications in this country and it's very expensive to produce those medications, but there's a point beyond which you're just being greedy. And that's what got the EpiPen maker in trouble with Congress. There's a point beyond which you don't need 10,000% profit.
0: I'm with you a million percent on that. Yeah. And I think that sounded like a case where everybody saw that pretty clearly.
1: Yeah, and for some reason he was singled out. But don't get me wrong, the generic pharmaceutical companies are playing they're, the same game for 100 different medications. Anything that's kind of life-saving, they're going to play that game for, because what are you going to do? You're going to die? are you going to go no into choice. medical bankruptcy? And that's, and this is the problem, Cal. Physicians are depressed and burnt out and have this moral injury and have all of this stuff because we are the only person that you as a patient can talk to. I just got a negative review a couple weeks ago because a lady came in, had a suspicious looking mole and we biopsied it, sent it off to the lab. Well, the lab, in order to do their due diligence, had to do some special tests on it to make sure it wasn't a melanoma, a cancer that will kill you dead reasonably quickly. She didn't get mad at the lab company. Who'd she get mad at? Oh, because they charged her more? Yeah, mean? she had like $600 or something like this of charges for her lab work. Who did she get mad at, Cal? She get mad at her insurance company because she had a $5,000 deductible? She get mad at the lab company because they had to do these tests to make sure she wasn't gonna die? Or she get mad at me who took the biopsy? Yeah, and I can see if you're that you're going through that many times in a day. Oh my gosh, it's all day long and prior authorizations this patient needs a certain medication. They won't give it to him. Sorry, doc, figure something else out. No, you don't understand. They need this medication, even if it's infections. I dealt with this years ago. There's a medication called Terbinafine that we use for fungal infections of the scalp, and the, this poor guy, through no fault of his own, was having a fungal infection that was eating his scalp off, literally. This medication was $4 generic at the time, cash pay price. His insurance wouldn't cover it. Well, this was when I was just out of the military, and I, was, I still had piss and vinegar in me. So I called the insurance company because surely this was a mistake. Now, the guy could afford $4, but it's the principal. You all know what happens when you fight for principle, Right. Okay. <laughs> so I got hung up on three times by the insurance company over a space of an hour. And I Because ne- you kept calling back. I kept, oh, sorry, we must have disconnected you. Really, that's weird because I'm, I'm not on a cell phone. This is a landline. Are you on a landline? Yeah, okay. Three times they just hung up on me. They would never approve this $4 medication because whoever was behind the counter, whoever said that that was too much for them to spend for a fungal infection eating a man's scalp off, and I had to deal with it. What did you do ultimately? I ultimately called the guy and said, look, um, it's $4 at King Supers." I did everything I could. Can you afford it? If he wasn't able to afford it, I would have paid for it. I would have handed him the $4 to go do it. Um, and he said, well, doc, thanks. I know you spent, you, you had some piss and vinegar in you about this. And I was like, yeah, this this, this nonsense has to stop. $4. Now, by the way, I'm sure that trabenafine now is a couple hundred dollars because the generic companies have figured out how to make more money off of it. But you get the point, Cal. The, the reason that physicians are depressed, that they're killing themselves, that they are burnt out, that all these horrible statistics, it's because the only person that any patient has to blame really is us. You try calling your insurance company and getting them to explain why they denied you care for something or they're not going to pay for the MRI. Good luck with that. But you can sure make an appointment, go into your doctor and yell at them for the contract that you signed with your insurance company that we have no control over.
0: So you've ripped the bandaid off. Now I'm just looking at the wound wondering, okay. And I, I, I am determined to talk to a lot of people about this because I smell that everybody sitting in your seat now is gonna say, w- we're getting
1: pushed up against the wall. The difference is I'm blaming all of us. I'm not singling any party out. What can physicians do
0: to better protect themselves. I mean, you're when you were describing doctors looking for other sources of income. I actually had an image in my mind of truck drivers mm. who were driving down the road at like three in the morning down the highway, hearing ads for companies telling them to go get lessons in coding or some kind of technology so that they can make the transition when driverless vehicles come in. That's what it sounded like to me. And yet, it's hard to get into medical school.
1: It is, but one of the good things about artificial intelligence or machine-based learning, whichever you want to call it, is that very soon we're going to be able to deliver healthcare abundantly to people for free. So I'm on a board of a company. Do I have skincancer.com? and for free it doesn't cost you a penny you can take a picture of a mole or a suspicious looking spot on your skin you can send it into them and within about 30 seconds they'll tell you if you either have a low moderate or high risk of that lesion being cancerous oh so this is free this is free and in 30 seconds in 30 seconds and you know the disclaimer is you always have to have everything looked at by a dermatologist and all this sort of thing but it has a 98% accuracy right now of low, which means basically no risk. Let's just monitor it and take a picture and send it to us. And we'll tell you via computer algorithms if it's changing. Moderate, yeah, you probably should have that biopsied. Or high, get your, get your butt in and get it biopsied now. 98% accuracy. And so physicians who think that everything is going to just keep going along at this pace we're not going to need as many physicians in 10 to 15 years because artificial intelligence is going to be changing everything. But even if that happens, even if the care is free, only about 15% of all healthcare dollars spent go to reimbursing the physician. Kind of staggering, isn't it? Only about 15 Where does
0: the rest of the money go?
1: Pharma, hospital systems, CTs, MRIs, diagnostic, whatever. All the other organizations that guess what? They can price fix. They can spend millions and millions of dollars in lobbying efforts. So, you know, it's always amusing to me when the government comes down and says, the cost of medical care is going too high, so we're going we're gonna to take money away from the doctors. And maybe that's appropriate in some situations. But if you were on a ship and it was sinking, would you go after 15% of the ship that was damaged or would you go after 40%, 50%? Yeah,
0: I, it's... You, all these numbers are coming at me and uh, right. maybe I have to learn to be, become a CEO a little quicker. <laughs> <laughs> well, but if I, you were I, you know, I, I money. here's money. Here's, yeah. here's what, like, I, I spent the last six months in, in one hospital watching somebody fight for his life and the hospital pulled him through. Yeah. and Heroic. Yes. I can only, yeah. like, you, at that point you're thinking, you know what, whatever it costs, you saved life. Right. Uh, I spent time at, wow, well, two other hospitals where the, the stories I hear, you, you know, they, they bring goosebumps to sure. you. So I, I know great things are happening in these places. In spite of the system. My feeling is that if I had a round table, everybody would be say, yeah, but you don't understand what they do to me. Correct. Here's, here's my pressure point. I'm, I'm being pushed up against the wall. Uh, but I'm gonna look into this because you, you have pulled the Band-Aid off pretty quick here. Yeah, not so gently. Not so gently. And starting with everybody realizing that it's, it's on them in this day and age, whether it's to educate themselves. So much of what you said really comes back to education. To educate yourself on what you're eating or, hey, that corn you're eating, do you know where that comes from? Or understanding that if you have a mole, you can go to that website. What was it it again?
1: It's pretty easy to remember. Doihaveskincancer.com. Yeah,
0: see, if you don't know about that, then you we're just in not as good a place to take care of yourself.
1: You don't, and unfortunately, the lower socioeconomic status you have, the less of these things you understand. A lot of the policies that come out of Washington, they're active policies, active public health, which means you actively have to do something to get the benefit, kind of like a health savings account. You actively have to put money in there so that you can use that money for healthcare costs. But the problem is, is that that only benefits people who have money and have the education to know about the programs. The people in the lower socioeconomic classes are just trying to survive. The public health policies that we need to be creating are active for people who have more as well as passive policies. Now, a passive policy is like putting fluoride in the water so you don't get as many cavities. Oh, I get it. Yeah. So you don't have to do anything. It just happens for you. Right. But the people who are making the laws, and I get it, they think in active policies because that's who they are. They tend to be educated and at the top of their game. And so that's how they think. So they keep making policies that are benefiting... A certain segment of the population and... The affluent segment and the non-affluent segment just keeps, they don't know what they don't know. Right. It's a huge problem. You know, you throw a park into a big inner city uh, neighborhood, a nice park with proper trees and properly pruned and all that sort of stuff. You'll decrease the murders and violent crimes statistically and predictably. And they've even done that so that however many parks you have, so much distance from each other, will lower violent crime
0: rates you told me an amazing fact last night about a
1: study in a prison yeah so they did um they did a study in a prison where they started actually feeding the inmates food that wasn't ultra processed it was more fruits and veggies and you know good stuff the stuff our grandparents told us that we should be consuming you know, this isn't new knowledge, by the way, Cal. This is stuff that grandpa and grandma told us for years as right. well as keep your opas off the table and sit up straight. And they had all these violent criminals in there after a month of eating this way. And a month is about the amount of time that it needs a new diet can change the gut bacteria. So all that bacteria, they call, they're calling the gut the second brain now because the gut controls so much more than just processing food. And all these violent criminals started saying, wow, I don't feel violent anymore. If I had eaten like this prior to being in here, I wouldn't have murdered, wouldn't have done this, wouldn't have done that. Very interesting. Yeah,
0: well, it it certainly sounds like a good start for anybody listening is just to have some carrots today. Yeah, (laughs) throw a carrot in there, see what happens. (laughs) I will. Uh, And I'm going to take this forward because I want to talk to people on all edges of this spectrum and just throw out a lot of the things that you've said. And I'm going to read your book, Universal Death Care in the Age of Entitlement. You're saying this is going to come out in around December?
1: I'm pushing hard for it to come out in December. I want it to have an impact on the next political cycle.
0: You, You really seem to be on a mission to make a huge
1: change. If you don't consider yourself part of the problem, you'll never see yourself as part of the solution. I'm a doctor in this system. And it was one of the things that I had such a hard time with in Iraq was I never pulled a trigger while I was in Iraq, but I was part of this huge machine that made- Oh, now,
0: you know what? We got to the end of this podcast where I finally understood the overlap for you. Yeah because you felt like you were in a huge machine mm-hmm. that even though you never pulled the trigger was responsible for carnage yeah and now you're in this huge machine once again and even though you're doing the best you can you're feeling like i don't well i don't even know how to describe it but
1: listen i'm feeling like because of my role in this all of these tragedies that are happening in America, just like the tragedies that happened in war, I have to take responsibility because if I don't take responsibility and if the people listening to this today don't take responsibility, nothing will ever change. All right.
0: We're going to leave it at that for now. I have a feeling you're going to be back on this podcast sometime <laughs> in the future, maybe with some other people. I'd love it. To go back and forth. I'll bring the, the boxing gloves. <laughs> oh, man. Well, actually, I was trying to figure out Solutions that might appeal to everybody.
1: Yeah. Uh, Do you think that's possible? 100%. I think, you know, it goes back to Simon Sinek's why, and Tony Robbins understand why you do these things, right? I think all of us want to be in a healthful society where we have abundant healthcare and where we can pursue our dreams without being encumbered by diseases. I think if we all rally around that mission, I think there's plenty of money to be made I think there's plenty of opportunities to be had. I am 100% convinced that if the CEO of a big insurance company or pharmaceutical company were here right now, they would have the same moral injury that I'm having because people's lives are being ruined over our system. So I think if we can rally around the why, forget partisan nonsense, actually be leaders in this country for once and say this is the right thing. And yes, you can still make money, but we're going to do this in an abundant way that everybody can get care Imagine how they'd go home different. Imagine how they'd feel different about their lives. We can have a rally cry here, Cal. We can have a rally cry where everybody wins. Healthcare providers, patients, business, government. We just have to get behind the right why. Let's do it. Let's do it, buddy. Thank you so much for
0: coming. And this will probably be the first of many. Awesome, thank you. All right, cheers, brother. Going to get some carrots. (laughs) (laughs) oh oh i forgot i got something for you and your wife oh amazing oh man here we go because i want you to leave comfortable you know there's some moments during this podcast where those the facts you were spitting out made you mighty uncomfortable (laughs) but we've got a sportique hoodie for your wife
1: Wow, this and, is soft.
0: And there we go. And the big questions, Comfy tea for you. Amazing. From our friends at Sportique. You know what? People don't understand when I'm talking about soft, what soft means. That there's like a big difference when you run your hands down this fabric than when you get a typical T-shirt on... A long table outside at some kind of event, and you're like happy to be there, and you want to remember it, and that's great. But this is really something that, when you put it on, you're gonna feel better. And you got the uh, the big questions.
1: That's amazing. Thank you. So
0: I hope you're all happy wearing them. And I know you are now going to roam in comfort. Thanks, Kel. All right. Cheers. That about wraps it up. I want to thank Tim Ferriss for pushing me to start this podcast because, well, I just can't thank Tim enough. I'm going to continue to have thoughtful conversations on healthcare in the hope that we can make sure we take care of the people who are taking care of others. Want to thank my sponsor, Sportique, for sparking such joy in me when I put on my hoodie to do these recordings. If you'd like to roam in comfort, check out sportique.com. That's S P O R T I Q E.com and get a 20% discount by using the offer code CAL. Want to thank racquetin for having me up to San Francisco to interview the Tidying Up Guru, Marie Kondo. You'll hear our talk on a podcast down the tracks. After you do, you will never ball up your socks again. I want to thank all of you who reach out with emails and tips on guests for big questions. We shall see you next week. Cheers.